My guest this week is Rich Siegel, founder and president of Barebone Software and the creator of the venerable BB Edit text editor for Mac. How's it going, Rich? It's going great, Brad. I'm delighted to be here. It's uh, where, where, what city are you in? So I'm, uh, I'm in Rhode Island, a little bit south of Providence. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere, but it's, it's nice. It's a lovely 80 degrees outside, and unfortunately, the humidity is right up there too. We've usually, uh, for the last year, had pretty much parity with New York temperatures, but right now it's 53 here. Oh, That's I can't funny. imagine. I, I would, I would kill for that. Of course, the the weather for the last week has been shifting by 20 to 30 degrees in under two hours. Those are up, fast fronts. Up and down? Yeah. That's that's just crazy. That's You must have some pretty heavy-duty thunderstorms to go along with that. Yep. 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 Crazy storms. And I, it's like, like nature is farting on us, and it just passes <laughs> quickly. Yeah. So... Yeah. So you 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 made BB Edit and BB Edit it predates TextMate, which kind of became the gold standard for uh, talking about extensible crazy text editors. But BB Edit has always kind of there's been a competition, and it's kind of died out since TextMate development kind of slowed down. But BB Edit has continued to grow. So well, first tell me what the original goal of BB Edit was. What year was that? Oh, that would have been in 1988 so, or 89 was, was when the, the first ground got broken on, on what was to become BB Edit. Well, that, what OS was that? OS. Oh, uh, let's see. So System 7 shipped in 1990 or 91, I wow. think it was. And so we were, we were looking at um, what would have been called System 6 at the time and, and MultiFinder which was the, the old cooperative tasking environment that, that lets you run more than one application at a time, oddly enough. Yeah, I, I refused to use a Mac back in those days. <laughs> I did not feel comfortable in that operating system. Back in those days, the Mac was a very, very different place to be, both as a user and as a developer. As a, as a user, uh, you kind of had to live with some of the shortcomings of the OS, right? If if an application crashed, it was going to bring down everything. Right. It's it's hard to imagine an OS that made uh, Windows uh, ninety five or Windows XP seem more bearable. It's it's pretty crazy. So, from a developer's perspective, what were the uh, what were the original goals of BB Edit, and what were the major challenges? So the, the, the primary driving goal of BB Edit was that I and the folks I was working with at the time, which were the, uh, it was actually the compiler group in Think Technologies. And, uh, the, and the driver there was that I and my colleagues needed a text editor that could open bigger files. And by bigger, we meant files bigger than 32K, which was the built-in that's 32,000 bytes, signed 16 bits. Um, uh, bigger than 32K, which was the limit of the old text edit APIs that were supplied as part of the OS at the time. And so uh, 
there was a library that Think had written to use in Lightspeed C and Lightspeed Pascal. And it actually came from the original text edit and heavily modified and rewritten. And it could open big files and it didn't have the performance compromises that the old text edit had. And so uh, Think actually productized this library. And so I started with that. And you could open big files really up to whatever could fit in memory. And it was super fast no matter how big your file was. There's, there's some real genius in, inside of it. And the problem was that the only clients of this library were these two programming environments that, that Think had developed, uh, Lightspeed C and Lightspeed Pascal. And Lightspeed C, as a point of its design, required you to have an, a, a project open. And Lightspeed Pascal was had such a purpose-built language-sensitive editor that it couldn't really be used for anything else. So I and, and, and the folks around me were saying, well, we need, <laughs> we need something that can open these big log files and, and big data files and, and where big was, you know, maybe a megabyte or two, right? Right. And, and do stuff with them. The interesting it's, point to me there is that at this point, there was no Unix subsystem for the OS, was there? That's correct. So that would be a huge hurdle. I mean, because if you had that, you could just use Vim and Emacs, and BBEdit might never have happened. It's possible. And, and I think at the time, uh, I don't remember the exact time frames. I could probably look it up. Uh, Apple was, was doing a, a System 5 Unix um, called AUX. And, and so that was an option, but it didn't really take off, and it wasn't something that everybody could use. Uh, the, <laughs> AUX was definitely not the, the uh, Unix for the rest of us that Mac OS X was to be. Right. And, 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 so, and so, yeah, there, there were, later on, there were some attempts to port Emacs to, to the Mac, and they didn't really go very well. And of course, you could, you could open up a, a, a terminal emulator and, and connect to a Unix machine and work there, but that wasn't the same. So <laughs> no. the other thing, though, the other thing about um, doing that on a Mac was that Mac developers were also Mac users, and they sort of came to expect a certain experience from not just their products, but their tools. So even I think even if you could have run VI or Emacs natively at the time, it's a little bit unclear as to whether that would have gained a lot of traction. Um, much in the sense today, if you look at Mac OS X, the proportion of, of Unix editor users, right? There's VI and Nano and, and, and Vim and, and Emacs and lots of really good stuff out there. But most folks seem to prefer something with a more application-like experience, a more Mac application-like experience. I, uh, I, even as someone who spends most of their life on the command line, I always, if, if I'm locally, if I'm working locally and not over SSH, I will always use a windowed text editor. Yeah, that is, exactly. I, that is something that I have come to expect for sure. Uh, right, uh, you know what, what what we would call a, a GUI editor, and and um, and it really doesn't matter what your preference is. If you're in a GUI OS, you find yourself preferring tools that work well within it. Definitely, and and once you get used to how good looking 
Cocoa applications are, then you even start to shun Java apps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you use them when you just really have no choice but to get the job done with whatever is available. Yes. And, and, so, and so, you know, here we are flashing back 25 years to 1989, and I'm taking these libraries, which were working really, really well in these two IDEs that we were shipping, and saying, okay, well, now let me start by building something that isn't an IDE, but it's a window editor and it can do all these things and, and it's got the basics that we need, multi-file search, and there was a grep library that, that we used and, and, uh, and I started putting these, these systems together, these pieces together to make something that we needed. So in a sense, that was, e even though the company that we call Barebones Software wasn't formed until oh, a good five years after that, officially speaking, if you look at the paperwork, um, the seeds of it were planted right then. Because that was, that, that has always been and has really stayed sort of one of our driving concepts is let's make products that solve problems for us and then put them out there so that other people can use them too. Which is, I would say, early on, that, that philosophy has come, become pretty pervasive in the indie software world these days. Mm -hmm. But I would say you may have been a forerunner. I, I don't think that's too far off. Uh, at the time, if you were to look at the, the, the software market, um, and I believe me, I want to go... I want to avoid going too far into "Hey, remember when?" territory, <laughs> <laughs> but um, in in the '90s, which is kind of that central decade when we were bringing everything up, developing software was a huge capital expense. The hardware was expensive. The tools were expensive. Uh, anybody who was working at the time can probably remember how much they paid for um, Apple's developer tools, which. Um, in addition to the developer program membership, the tools themselves were $1,300. And which is, of course, today just inconceivable. Yeah. Uh, and then once you had it written, which, of course, took gangs of highly paid engineers, quality assurance and documentation staff, um, you then had to ship it. And there wasn't a World Wide Web to do downloads. You would duplicate it first onto floppy disks and later onto CDs and put it into brightly colored boxes, which had to be designed and manufactured and stored. And then you had to ship that either through distributors or directly to customers. So software development was a stupendously expensive business to be in. And the nature of the businesses that it attracted and the way those businesses operated really were a reflection of that. That's almost inconceivable. I mean, that kind of, I didn't, I, I, I used to script back then, you know, mm -hmm. I ran BBSs and things, but the idea of selling software never occurred to me mm -hmm. until, you know, until after OS 10. And then development was so easy that y you could basically, you could try something, put 99 cents on it, throw it out on the web, see what happens. Like you didn't, the investment wasn't there to prevent you from experimenting. Right. Or the or the the uh, or the investment was low enough that you could cross off the really, really expensive things like 
manufacturing, inventory, and transport. So yeah, you could you could build something, put it out there. You hell, you could put it out there for free, right? And and see what kind of traction it got. Yeah. Uh, and the sort of coming forward to the present day, the 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 internet, the web has done a great deal to uh, lower those barriers of entry. You know, free tools from from the platform vendor have made it really easy to to just all you need is a Mac, right? And, and you can get a perfectly good one for a thousand dollars or even less. And, and so, uh, and so it's super easy to get started in the business. Now, the, the catch in all of this though, is that you still have to have a viable product idea. Um, well, if you actually want to make money, if you want to make money, if you want to make a living at it, exactly. Uh, and, if it's just a hobby, of course, you know, do whatever you like, do whatever feels good. Um, but those those solid products, um, and to sort of come back to my my original point, the the bigger companies um, that were doing the 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 headline product development in the '90s, Microsoft, Adobe, Macromedia, uh, a lot of them are still around in some form, uh, but. Yeah, Macromedia is in the form of Adobe. Yeah, Macromedia got rolled into Adobe. And um, they developed software products that were technologically very interesting and very well constructed. But a lot of times they came from trying to address more directly a market need. Right. Well, a and little I think... Bit, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry for interrupting, but there's uh, there's this interesting distinction between a good idea and a viable idea, mm-hmm. and then there's this evolution that happens between your your original idea and then something that is market friendly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and we we see that all the time at all kinds of scale. Um, for us, it's a product idea that kind of morphs on its way from the designer's head to the market. But in an even smaller sense, an individual feature might go through that same uh, shape shift where you say, okay, so I just had this great idea for a feature and I'm going to design it. I'm going to prototype it. Oh, okay. So the prototype isn't quite working the way I envisioned. Well, let's modify this. And okay, we've got a good prototype. Let's see what the users think. And we give it to a few beta sites and and the beta sites come back and you think, oh, that's not really quite working the way we thought. And so it goes through all of these these cycles and turns into something very different from what you conceived. How much time do you put into deciding whether or not to even begin the implementation? Because what you just described, it sounds like it's kind of hard to give up. Like, I don't know where the turning back or like the point of no return would be on it. So does it take a lot of consideration for something like BB edit to to go and implement a new feature um sometimes it takes very little consideration at all where i am so sure of what i want to do that even even in its final form it's uh it's going to be good or even if it never leaves the office, I'm going to write something interesting that 
generates some new technology or some new chunk of code that I know I can use for something else. And I've and I've seen that uh, and I've seen that happen uh, a few times in my own work where I'll just start writing something and I'll write some really clever code that turns out to not be usable for what I had in mind. But I'm not going to throw away because I put time into writing it and I can see someday how this will be useful. So it goes into my toolbox. Well, and at that point, like that's less part of product development to me than it is about growth as a coder. Like anytime I have an idea and I wonder if it can be done or how I could do it, I will code it. But a lot Mm -hmm. of times that stuff does not immediately make it into a product. Right. But I learned so much from it. Exactly so. And and when that happens, you know, one point of view could be, oh, I just wasted all this time and I didn't get my feature done. Well, yeah, back in the 90s, if somebody were looking over your shoulder, measuring your operational effectiveness as a as an individual contributor. Well, yes, that's right. (laughs) But um, I have always tried to avoid looking at productivity that way. And, um, you know, what we do developing, developing software products is, is sort of this, this interesting intersection between engineering and art. And so if you, if you look at it as a little bit more like an artistic endeavor, you say, wow, I've created something kind of beautiful. Let's not get too hung up on how useful it is. There was a point in the 90s where I started learning about the uh, the development environment at Redmond. And they had these very separated teams that were on these, basically the kind of productivity metric that you described. And it, it was, in my opinion, what resulted in inferior software on the PC platform. And I think that the growth of the independent developer community that kind of sprouted out of those like sharing uh, three and a half inch floppies around at PC user clubs mm-hmm. or user groups. Um, I think that really changed the face of the development that all of us are doing today, even in larger corp, even Microsoft itself saw that maybe this, uh, this kind of slave labor cubicle development with lack of inner team communication wasn't going to be the most efficient Right. You you can get to a certain point, I think, if you treat a software engineer or a QA engineer or a technical writer as a reusable component. Right. You, you, you can get to a certain point. You can uh, you, you can um, you can get to a certain point if you apply rigid s- standards to how a product is specified and documented and and code it um and and we've we've seen a lot of this i think with the outsourcing that happened in the 90s and the early 2000s where these big software companies would say okay let's uh let's industrialize the process of of making these products let's let's specify them so thoroughly that we can hand the engineering to a team in india and hand other parts of the engineering to a team in California. And then guess what? We've got people working on this 24 hours a day. And you can, as we've seen, 
you can get pretty far with that. And you can develop good products and you can develop complicated products. But I think what happens when you industrialize that process is you you lose a lot of fluidity, you lose a lot of creativity, you take away, in my view, a, a lot of opportunity for the people who conceived the product to to influence it to rapidly move in a new direction when necessary the uh i think the major change since then is the uh the presence of the internet and the uh communication platforms that are continually improving so that you can have those 24 7 groups that it almost it's almost like working in the same room Mm -hmm. i think that makes uh, a big difference and allows companies to take a more industrial approach but still get that creativity and get that passion behind the, the final product? I think, I think if, you, if you apply that, that reasoning, and, and we're sort of getting beyond my experience here because that <laughs> isn't something that I've done, um, ha- having instant live communication, right? Skype, instant messaging, Slack, uh, you know, whatever, however you want to, however you want to implement it within a team. I think that's terrific. I I think um, within a a closely connected product group, even if they're not physically in the same room, you uh, you really want good communication within a team to to get things done and to to adapt to changing needs. But my my comments about industrialization are a little bit more at the big picture level. Could you have a team in every different time zone and have them work together all as one? Sure. To you, some extent, you, yeah. You could, I, I don't see why not. Um, there are, I think, going to be some issues that arise when you have a big enough team, no matter who they are and where they are. And and that's when you have to subdivide and and come up with processes that, that, uh, that, uh, that let you be productive. I think right now, um, if you look at how Apple's got to work, right, they must have enormous, an enormous collective team working on many different pieces and trying to bring them all together. And, and so I think I th- they're doing it more successfully than they used to. Uh, one more time, please. And I think they're doing it more successfully than they used to. More successfully in some ways, I think, you know, look, looking at some recent rumblings from from folks like Craig Hockenberry, you've, you might recall that post of his recently about Discovery D. Yes. Uh, and I don't want to get dig too deep in the details because that's not really important. Um, I think you might once in a while let something out that that shouldn't have gone out yet. It's uh, because, all right, we'll, we'll talk about this just for a second. Like the Discovery sure. D issue, or the, um, it basically, because it's so system level, it doesn't seem, it seems too technical for the average user, but it has a serious effect on the top level operating system, like losing network connectivity. Like Craig is, you know, smart enough and experienced enough to figure out what the issue is. Uh-huh. But Apple released something that had some, it had a major flaw that affected everybody, not just the technical developer community. And that does seem like a foundational problem 
with the development cycle. Right, and even inside of an application, uh, the lower level some piece of code is, the, f the more important it is to get it right, to get it as, and by right I mean as stable and fast and reliable as it can possibly be. And so when something at a very low level in the OS ends up causing a lot of user-facing problems, you've, I, I, I think you've arguably failed that test. Yes. And there's going to be, I think, a lot of, <laughs> there going to be, there already is a lot of Kremlinology about uh, how Discovery D came to be and how it went out the door in this condition. And when is it going to get fixed? For somebody like me who's outside of, of the Apple firewall, it's going to all be pure speculation. All I can do is, is look in that and say, wow, you know, they're on a yearly release cycle. That's got to make things really, really, really hard to get right when you conceive something at the beginning of a development cycle and have to ship it for the end. A yearly, uh, they're trying to get away from that, I think. I, I sense the, uh, their separation from Macworld and their uh, creation of more customly timed events in Keynotes seems like maybe they're trying to give themselves the flexibility to prevent this, but they definitely, I mean, it seems increasingly rushed even despite doing that. Exactly. And uh, they're in a difficult position because the market kind of demands that they do certain things and their own internal drive and creativity really kind of demand that they do certain things. And because now there's this, now it's a three device ecosystem, right? We have uh, Macs and we have phones, uh, iOS devices, phones and iPads, and now we have the watch. And a lot of this stuff is almost in lockstep. You mean operating system wise? Yeah, or or um, uh, capability wise, I'm thinking. Right. Well, and and right. it has to be to do to yeah. create the ecosystem that Apple wants to have everything fluid and interconnected. In order to add new capabilities, everything has to shift. So you do have three parallel development cycles going. Exactly. Now try getting it all done within the span of a year, minus time for QA and documentation. I honestly, I can't imagine. <laughs> and 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 so that's what I that's what I see when I look at this. And like I said, I'm outside of the uh, I'm outside of the firewall. I don't have an Apple.com email address. I don't have any special insights. It's just that uh, from from this seat, I have a difficult time imagining how you'd how you'd pull that off without uh, some sacrifice somewhere. But we'll see. I mean, they have uh, a big pile of really smart people who work really hard and and are very good at what they do. So I'm, I'm sure that they will eventually sort this out. All right. So one more uh, BB edit related topic. Sure. Um, in the 2000s, uh, TextMate was released by Ellen Odgard and mm -hmm. a community sprouted up around it that appeared to consist of BB Edit users and new programmers. And there was, it, it developed very rapidly. And the thing that I saw most often on both uh, bare bones forums and text ma mailing lists was 
comparisons between the two editors. You know, BB Edit can do this. Why can't TextMate and vice versa? Mm -hmm. And it led to rapid feature development in TextMate, although I didn't track BB Edit as closely. Would you say that that kind of environment sped development, sped uh, urgency, or created new... uh, new feature ideas that wouldn't have existed without that competition? Well, I think when you have competition in any given product arena, uh, as the saying goes, a rising tide lifts all boats. And so you, you, you work harder when you've not only got somebody to chase, but also when you've got somebody chasing you. Uh, metaphorically speaking, yes. and and so, <laughs> right, you you don't have to run faster than the bear; you just have to run faster than the guy behind you, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, and and it 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 can be very motivating to uh, to to have people tell you, hey, you know, I saw this capability in this other product, and it's something that I could apply to my work, and I I love your product. Could you do this? Um, that is very motivating because whenever somebody writes in and tells to support and says, here is something that I need to do and I can't figure out how your product can help me. What can you do to help me? You know, I love that. I love seeing that. What we sort of need to avoid and what I, what I have always very carefully avoided is a situation in which I'm constantly trying to clone someone else's product. And so when somebody writes in and says, hey, this other product does this thing, can you do it too? My initial response is going to be, well, tell us what you need to do. Clearly, the other product solves your problem in a particular way. But I'm not going to just implement that thing because somebody else doesn't. I, I hate being in the position of always following like yeah. when when you're in a market, you know, with two or more big players that are essentially the same, they have the same goal, same function. Those added features, if you're not ahead of the game, you do spend all your time just trying to figure out how someone else did something. And that's not nearly as much fun as implementing something innovative and new. Right. And so what you have to do and what we've always had to do in some form or another is to is to create and and maintain a balance between being in cre- being creative and, and innovative because that's what we all want to do but also working hard at maintaining or improving uh, a baseline because that's what happens is when you when you end up with a mature market like code editors um the 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 baseline set of features is kind of constantly elevating so the, the minimum viable product today is much more complicated than the minimum viable product of five or 10 or even 15 years ago. Right. And so, uh, and, and so when you have a competitive environment, you, you could spend all of your time trying to get up to minimum viable product or competing on features with somebody else, which is probably a little closer to what's really happening. Uh, or you can spend your time being creative and innovative, which is, I think, a much better, much better place to be. So in terms of having a competitive environment that, you know, as I said, it's very motivating to have 
to have this effect where people using some other product write in and say, um, I have a problem to solve. How can you help me solve it? And I, I apologize for all the squeaking in the background. Somebody woke up from their nap. Do you have any enrichment toys around you want to give her? Uh, no, this is, this is the little cockatiel and they're not smart. He's not smart enough to be enrichable. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, okay. I'm, we'll, we'll shift gears because of the, uh, the background noise to talk about the background noise. <laughs> when I met my wife, um, I, I almost immediately fell in love with her and we've been together for almost a decade now. And she came into the relationship with one major flaw and uh and that was that she owned an african gray parrot and uh-huh. the african gray parrot never liked me never <laughs> it's it's been a battle um it's I, it, it's probably the worst thing for me every day is to deal with that kind of noise and the fact that i can't pick her up i can't walk too close to the cage mm-hmm. she she's not like that with anybody else she's just she she's vicious towards me so, Must kill. so when I first met you, I think I almost immediately stuck my foot in my mouth complaining about this <laughs> because it's unfathomable to me that other people choose to inflict that on themselves. So tell me, wh- wh- how did you get into owning birds and why? Well, <clears throat> it's, it's funny you mention your wife because it was my wife who first introduced me to the concept of bird, o- of bird ownership. Um, she had had, uh, many years before I met her, uh, a cockatiel and, um, I, I don't even remember the conversational path by which we ended up getting one, but we got one. And, uh, and, and that was my first real exposure to birds as pets. And I learned how to take care of them, uh, and and so we had we had this little cockatiel for a few months and 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 she would sit there and once in a while she would squeak and and she looked kind of alone in her cage and i thought she wouldn't she like a friend so uh i got a second cockatiel which was a mistake yes <laughs> because because when i brought the second bird into the house and and i knew back then far less about birds than I do now. Uh, but when I, when I, uh, brought the second bird into the house, they had, they had been cage mates in the pet store and one of them squeaked and the other squeaked back. And that was it. They were squeaking and squeak and squeak and squeak until, until they were together. And then they stayed together. Um, and the, the, uh, and they, they instantly bonded into a pair. And had no use for anyone else except as a food source, which was it, it was OK. They kept each other company. Um, the first bird, uh, she actually died a year ago. And so the surviving uh, member in the pair is, is in the process of of rebonding with me, which is a problem because when I'm out of the room now, he squeaks and squeaks and squeaks. So in the middle of all this. The the subject of getting a larger bird came up and my my wife had always uh been been sort of interested in that and one day i went to a pet store and uh, we we went to a pet store to just look at the larger birds not really planning on it but um and they had 
blue and gold macaws. They're beautiful birds. With huge beaks. With huge beaks. And I, I, I picked one up. They, they were just babies, maybe four months old. And I picked one up and it fell in love with me and wanted to come home with me. It, it climbed up my arm and, and sat on my shoulder and was perfectly happy there. So I said, oh, okay, now I'm starting to see why people like birds. They're, the bigger ones are really interesting and they've got personality. And Yeah, but scorpions will climb on you. <laughs> of course, there are people it, who have those as pets as well. Well, I was going to say there are people who keep spiders as pets. And uh, there's a local pet store where, where I'll go sometimes for supplies and, and, and they, they have spiders. And I, I said, yeah, people keep spiders as pets. I, I'm not going to judge somebody for their choice of pet, but I'm curious. I said, you know, do the spiders care? What kind of bond do you form with a spider? The, the kind of bond you get from uh, having something dependent on. I mean, that's really what pet ownership is, is having there's even even with like mammals that do display affection and and feelings. It, it's it's you you want someone to feel like you are needed and spiders kind of provide that they need food you know they need care but they don't and, scream and i guess the tarantulas are really kind of cuddly i don't know yeah actually they uh, are more uh, more so to me than i think birds are at what point did at, at what point in, in getting to know birds did you feel like they were expressing affection so so the, here's the, here's the thing, right? Um, we we did a little homework and and a little investigating, and we ended up getting an African gray from a breeder in uh, Miami. And just as a footnote, I would say today, if you were looking at getting a bird, um, it's better to adopt. Well, we were we were at the we were at the very tail end of of the people buying birds from breeders wave. There are a lot of people who impulsively, and this happens with a lot of pets, but there were a lot of people who impulsively bought parrots from breeders, realized it was a bad choice, and then ended up just sort of having to either serious, serially rehome them or, or give them to sanctuaries because they just couldn't cope. Neither the birds nor the owners could cope. Yeah. Well, in uh, the, the, the other half of the industry is all import, and that industry is, oh yeah, even if you don't like birds, it's horrifying. Yeah, it is. Um, and, and so we ended up getting a, a gray from uh, a breeder in Miami. And she and this is our first large bird. And she is so even tempered and so affectionate and uh, and so quiet. <laughs> that, see, <laughs> that, I think I might have that, a developmentally challenged bird. Well, you might or you might have a normal one. <laughs> and you have the extra special one. And, and we have the extra special one because there, I think there's a, in, as in people, there's a lot of, a lot of variation. Um, and I decided to get, uh, again, all my fault. Uh, I thought, gee, so we, we've got this gray and, and she's wonderful. Wouldn't two be fun? And also she was more bonded with my wife than with me, although she was also fine with me. Um, and she still is. And I thought, gee, well, wouldn't, wouldn't another gray be fun? Let's get a male. I'm not going to breed them, but, but, you know, it might be fun to see the differences. And, <laughs> yeah. 
And here comes, you know, here comes my my other gray, who is much more highly strung, who is super intelligent. Not that they both aren't, but he's he's along a, he's along a very different axis, and um, an excellent imitator of voices. Whereas the other one is an excellent imitator of sounds. Yeah, my and bird only does sounds, farts, burps, running water, and coffee grinders. <laughs> yep. My female does smoke alarms. If it beeps, creaks, squeaks. Yep. Um, she whistles tunes. She's a very good singer. Um, my other gray handles all the body noises, all the <laughs> talking. Uh, he whistles, but not nearly so well. And he does a disturbingly loud imitation of the cockatiel flocking screech. Yeah, that see that right there. It, I those sounds. I'm I, I'm very very sensitive to noise. Like uh-huh. I don't I I have to hide in the basement when the vacuum's running because it just makes my head explode. And mm-hmm. then we have a bird that just screams once in a while, not constantly. She's a very good whistler. But when I hear those screams, my first thought is the lifespan of this bird is 60 to 70 years and it fills me with dread. Right. And, and so I think, um, you know, I, I look at him. He's locked up right now, by the way, because and he's desperately trying to get out because when I have these headphones on, he <laughs> wants to come over and see what it's about. Does he destroy and, the headphones? Oh, he would if I if I if I let him. He'd go right after the cord and just chew it right up. See, that's the other thing I don't understand about bird ownership is they they interact with everything by tearing it apart. Uh-huh. In a dog, you, you would you would train them not to do that. You would look for a dog that didn't do that. With birds, there's really no choice. So they have they have enrichment toys. He's got plenty to chew on, and they are destructive to property when they don't have what they need. Exactly. You so must I've, always feed the beast. I've I've got a damaged window frame here from when uh, from when Bruno didn't have enough wood to chew on. Yep. And right now he's hanging off his rope perch, chewing on it, which is going to not end well. <laughs> My wife brings home these huge, elaborate like candelabras made from. They're like uh, those Chinese finger toy uh-huh. finger uh-huh. cuffs, and uh, and wood and cardboard and just they're bouquets and that will last for one day yep um uh, bruno likes knots did you just walk away i did sorry (laughs) okay uh bruno likes knots and uh, i've had some great conversations with bird toy designers because i've bought bird toys from them and bruno will undo a single knot and the whole thing falls apart. <laughs> That's bad planning. And and I've and I've written to them and I've said, hey, you know, this is a great toy. He loves it, but he undid one knot and an entire strand of blocks fell off. Could you um, could you do me a new version that has a knot in between each block? Smart. And 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 yeah, and that's the thing. The the reward is is proportional to the challenge, or maybe the challenge is proportional to the reward, and. Uh, I think that's why a lot of people have birds, uh, larger ones at least, because they really are. They the greys especially have a real intellect, and you can frequently see it at work, and that's just kind of amazing. 
See, I like to watch YouTube videos of the African Greys that, like, uh, what was the name of the one that, for like 20 years, there were studies and he could uh, associate colors and shapes and create oh, right. his sentences um, on his own? Alex, yeah. Alex, yeah. That stuff's amazing, and I love to watch it, but I, I, I wouldn't invite him to stay overnight. <laughs> well, and uh, imagine the level of patience and dedication that it takes to not only raise a bird like that, yeah, here he is, let's see what he does with my headphones, uh, to, to not only raise a bird like that, but to, uh, to work with it, to, to train it, to explore its cognitive abilities, um, and, and, and go through that whole process. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you have it. I, I feel like I feel like I will never really I'll never understand I'll never comprehend the uh, the affection the willingness to put up with the the downsides see I feel odd about oh, horses too so I'm sorry I feel odd about horses like I, I like horses better than birds but any creature that's slightly unpredictable and can kill me <laughs> when it goes to like when it feels uncomfortable on the back end and it just kicks yeah that that's kind of the same problem I have with uh, a small creature that has a pair of bolt cutters attached to its face <laughs> and also the ability to fly across the room. Right. And, you know, it's 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 funny because I my wife and I went away for a weekend to one of these places that had a, a, a spa where you could get manicures and stuff. And, and uh, they're looking at my hands and and the manicurist looked at my hands and said, do you work with metal? <laughs> And I said, no, I have a, I have a bird. And she said, oh, I should have noticed I have an Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> Bonding over scarred hands. <laughs> well, and the, and the funny thing is, um, it's, you know, one of them, one of them does it and the other doesn't. The, the, you know, the one who bites is, is the super smart, anxious, high strung one. And a lot of times that's how he expresses his unhappiness with, my failure to read him correctly. But yeah, imagine a three-year-old with, with a pair of tin snips and a hammer. Well, in that intelligence is, it's problematic in any pet, well, in people as well, because it takes constant enrichment. And like yep. uh, getting really high drive, intelligent uh, herding dogs, most mm -hmm. people are not equipped to keep those dogs mentally busy enough that they don't become destructive yep. and that to me i like i like pit bulls because they're not high drive and they're not always that smart and <laughs> i don't mind that that's what i want in something that i'm going to live with yeah anyway we should get to the top three picks while your bird's quiet for a minute there there, there are so many different tastes right <laughs> yes. people and dog people and cat people and fish people and i am technically a cat people I love cats. I grew up with cats. I love cats. We had a cat who overlapped with the birds, and the heat, you know, she was great. Oh, our cats love the bird. <laughs> they get very close, and they just hang out. They, the cats aren't even curious for some... I think they recognize the fact that that beak is, is kind of the first line of defense, and they just give up at that point. This episode has been brought to you by PDF Pen Pro, which is the advanced version of PDF Pen, the ultimate all-purpose PDF editor from Smile. It does everything that PDF Pen does, 
such as add signatures, edit text and images, perform OCR on scanned documents, and export in Microsoft Word format. Only PDF Pen Pro can create an interactive PDF form, build a table of contents, set document permissions, and convert websites to multi-page PDFs. The new PDF Pen Pro 7 adds easy editing of OCR text from scanned documents, as well as export in Microsoft Excel, Microsoft PowerPoint, and PDF archive format. Edit PDFs on the go with PDF Pen Pro's iOS companion, PDF Pen for iPad and iPhone. Support the show by going to smilesoftware.com systematic. Add PDF Pen Pro to your toolbox today. So picks, well, let's see. Um, so I was thinking about my picks and not all of them are new, but I, I, I think there might be some that your, your listeners haven't heard of before or might not have been aware of. Um, the first pick is uh, a kitchen appliance that I have made really good use out of over the past year or so. Um, it's an immersion circulator for cooking sous vide. I, th- you just said a bunch of words. I don't know. Did they not come through clearly? Or no, did I don't know it? what an immersion circulator is, and I don't. You said something in French, I think. So um, sous vide, S O U S V I D E, is is the practice of cooking food that has been vacuum sealed in a water bath. Oh, so you, okay. You, I, there's a restaurant you, here that does steaks like that. Yeah, and you you prepare your you prepare your food, you and and you you vacuum seal it, and you put it in a water bath, and the time in the bath and the temperature varies depending on what you're cooking and what effect you're trying to accomplish. And then you take it out at the end and depending on what it is, you might uh, sear it in a hot pan or, uh, or just eat it. And the, over the past couple of years or until relatively recently, I should say, the, um, that sort of cooking has been the domain of super expensive appliances. Think, you know, a couple thousand dollars for, for a water, they call them water ovens sometimes. And, um, but over the past couple of years, these consumer grade circulators, they're called immersion circulators because you, you stick them into a water bath and turn them on and they circulate the water and they maintain temperature. And, uh, and you end up being able to cook this way at home, and all you need is a bucket, really, to put stuff in. And is it uh, the reason given by the restaurant locally that does this is that it allows them uh, consistent control over the action, like with steaks. It, it cooking a steak on you know a pan or even baking it is kind of a it's a science with yep. a lot of variables. Is the immersion better? It's. It's much less stressful to cook a steak sous vide because, for me at any rate, because, so what I'll do, steak or boneless chicken breasts or something, I'm having lunch, I'll set them up. I'll season them and I'll seal them in, in the pouches and I'll set the water bath. And so 12, 30, one o'clock, I'm starting to cook dinner. I throw them into the water bath and forget about them for four or five hours. That's so much forethought though. I kind of like the idea of, you know, an hour of prep and then seven minutes of cooking and 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 you can do that too um again depending on what you're making but i also sort of know in advance 
it's not necessarily about forethought. It's more, it's more about, hey, you know, I feel like steak for dinner tonight. See, but I never feel like dinner at lunch. Oh, okay. I Super. like this idea. <laughs> I, and I like, like slow cookers and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I just, I don't think about dinner until dinner. So if you're slow cooking, right, you clearly haven't thought about what you're what you want to eat when, except that you have, uh, you know, with sous vide. I mean, I did did tuna steaks yesterday. Those only take an hour in, in the water bath. Yeah, I could live with that. Um, so the, the thing of. Yeah, but your your restaurant is right on target and a lot of restaurants will do their steaks that way because. You can do one temperature. You do one temperature for medium rare, and one temperature for rare, and one temperature for well done, and and uh, and well, not that anyone one would ever eat a steak well done, but uh. my parents would. <laughs> Growing up, uh, that was what we always had. Well done, great. Well done. Ugh, what a waste of a good piece of meat, you know. Yes. In in my view. Well, <laughs> and I went vegetarian, and I still I still uh, soliloquize about. Uh, medium rare steaks exactly and and as a consequence uh the other thing that i like about it is i can sort of time my dinner preparation much more easily because i'll take a little water bath and i don't have to worry about it overcooking. i can set the plate up put the meat on it the instant it's it's, it's done and it's really for a certain class of things changed the way that I that I cook and how I think about cooking. I just figured out the difference between us. You are methodical and appreciate variable control and I am impulsive and erratic. And that is everything that we've disagreed on so far pretty much comes down to those things. Different different strokes. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So so my pick number one is is a particular brand of immersion circulator called Nomiku. N-O-M-I-K-U. All right. And it's it's great. It's easy to use. It comes with great instructions. And if it's something where you're looking if you're even curious about getting started with this kind of cooking or curious about exploring it, it's I won't say cheap. I think it's one ninety nine or something for the, the That's current generation cheap compared to two thousand. Right, and and it's inexpensive enough that you're willing to at least think about uh, buying one to to try out. Awesome. And if, and if you don't like it, there's probably somebody who will buy it off you. All right, that might make a good gift for one of my family members. I can think of. There you go. I'll stick with uh, my soylent for now. But <laughs> so yeah, we'll go back and forth then, and I'll do my first pick which is an app I may have mentioned before on iOS, but I will mention again because of a new release. Um, it's called TaskMater, and it's a continuation of the now uh, defunct task paper for iOS code. And it it's, you know, gives you plain text to do task management that you can sync with your computer and use with any text editor or with task paper or folding text. And it's... I like the portability of task paper files. So TaskMater is a great way for me to extend that to my iPhone. And the new version just added uh, reminder capability. So you can actually put like at do and at start and um, uh, and at done tags that are recognized as date tokens. And then can it's, you can turn on a reminder for a task 
simply by starting one of those tags and letting it autocomplete. It's pretty cool. That sounds really neat. I'm going to have to look into that. Any, any little thing that I can find that might help me keep organized and stay on track is a good idea, I think. Uh, for me, it's all about uh, ease, of, ease of adding and reviewing. So I can use just about any system. But task paper is because I spend so much time on the command line, I can script and build utilities to quickly add ideas and bug reports and things to individual products, projects. And then I, I turned to OmniFocus for most of my like errand and email, you know, uh, reminders, things like that. But task paper fills every other need for me just because I can automate the heck out of it. Excellent. So as long as we're talking about apps, uh, I'll throw in my number two pick here, yep. which is uh, a relatively recent release, not brand new, um, of one of my old favorites, which is Fantastical. Yep. Um, uh, Flexibits released version two. Of, of, I guess it's been a few weeks now. And I always liked Fantastical, but never quite got the hang of using it on my Mac because it was this little menu bar pop-up. And so uh, there was that. And then I would use uh, calendars or iCal as it was before. And and I never quite was able to get Fantastical into my workflow. But the new version is a full calendar UI with that really nice natural language input. And, and so when he shipped, uh, he, they, uh, shipped a new version, it was pretty much an instant buy. I downloaded it, used it for the demo period, and then bought it without really even thinking about it because I got fully hooked right away. Do you want to know how familiar I am with this product? Intimately? Do you have it open right now? Is it You're running? In the, are you in the about box? No, but if you go to, well, I actually don't know if I am, but if you go to the help, if you go to Fantastical Help, okay. it'll open a website. I wrote that entire thing. <laughs> so you don't need me to tell you how great it is. I absolutely love Fantastico. It, from even version one on my Mac, I, I don't know if I've opened Calendar ever since. I like the, uh, the very minimal. I don't do a lot of scheduling, mm -hmm. but the natural language input on a hotkey and then the quick overview alone was enough to sell me. But the full calendar view is awesome and being yeah. able to type someone's name while i'm creating a task and automatically send invites to contacts mm -hmm. without a single mouse click <laughs> it's just awesome it's a it's a nice looking app it's a great working app um it's just really well put together and and even though i knew what i was getting into from version one the new version just fit into my daily workflow so naturally that you know, it's like I've always used it and and I'm I'm just super happy with it. Totally agreed. All right. So my next pick is only going to be of interest to programmers, uh, specifically uh, Apple, Coco, Objective-C, Swift programmers. Uh, <laughs> but I figured given the guest this week, I, I was justified. So I'm going to pick CF String Tokenizer and NS Linguistic Tagger as a pick. Because I've spent years doing string parsing and analysis and trying to find advanced ways to efficiently 
you know, study and, and analyze a string. And these two tools, the Core Foundation and then the NS Linguistic Tagger, are extremely fast. And I just implemented an entirely new system in Mark for determining things like uh, gunning fog indexes and readability scores using these tools. And I am amazed at how just it's all free. Like, basically, I say, pull out all the sentences and then do this to them one by one. And it's 10 times faster than the the bizarre methods I'd been using before. CF string tokenizer, especially. I had used NS linguistic tagger heavily, but CF string tokenizer for a lot of the things I was hacking NS linguistic tagger to do, CF string toker, CF string tokenizer has automatically and I didn't know about it until recently. I think you've got a new pick category here, API of the week. <laughs> there you go. I think that's a different podcast, but yeah, I, I've used a little. I've used the um, the um, uh, what do they call latent semantic analysis stuff? Yeah, which is sort of at the very low levels of that. Um, and yeah, it's it's crazy. You you look at it and you suddenly realize just how much work went into this and and the crazy stuff that they must be using it for and how much work you don't have to put into <laughs> exactly all right so my final pick it's another piece of of kitchen hardware i'm sorry that's Can't fine help it. um and this is again by no means new but it could be useful it's called a toddy t-o-d-d-y and it is a very basic very easy to use but highly effective cold coffee brewing system i have owned one of those for almost 10 years now okay so i've i've been aware of it for a long time and and never quite made the leap and then one day i realized you know we've got a new coffee drinker in the house and you know the toddy is so inexpensive it's what 30 40 bucks i think i don't it's even so think in- i spent that much but yeah. yeah it's so inexpensive let me set this up and brew around and and see how they like it and Lo and behold, a day later, it's it's a hit. Caffeine, you know, new caffeine dependency created. How large is your toddy? I'm not sure if there are multiple sizes, but um, it's the it's the standard one. I think the standard load is seven cups of water. Yeah, okay, that's what I have. Um, uh, basically, it's a half pound of grounds, but it makes enough for me to drink as a concentrate, diluted every day for probably a week. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, yeah, this one takes 12 ounces of coffee and seven cups of water. It would be sort of nice if the, the bucket were a little bigger and I could brew a whole pound at a time, but that's just really a nit. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with your pick. I, I've moved on to the AeroPress and the Chemex alternately because I actually I kind of like the bitterness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are definitely, like if you do a Sumatra in the toddy, you come out with something that is not at all what you would get with a Sumatra in a drip brewer. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, I like it better than the drip brewed Sumatra for those really acidic coffees. It is an excellent way, especially since you yeah. can refrigerate it and keep it for a while. Yeah. And I like my coffee iced frequently. So, uh, what I'll do, I, what I'll do is, uh, I'll usually drink espresso in the morning. I used I'll, to, I'll pull a few shots uh, chill it while I do other things and then ice it and drink it. And, um, and so I, you know, the, for me, the bitterness is not a problem. I, I, I like coffee in all of its forms and it's really just a question of variation. Yeah. 
And that, that's why I have more coffee brewing contraptions around the house than I care to admit. <laughs> or than my wife can stand. But I always have the, uh, but I, you have a bird bargaining chip, so that works out. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, my last pick is also extremely developer-centric. Um, I've been, there are a ton of great plugins for Xcode. And anyone who uses Xcode should definitely go find the Alcatraz plugin manager. And it makes adding and removing plugins from one central location extremely simple um, and finding new plugins. And there are some that I honestly couldn't live without. I'm going to list a couple I could go on. But the first one is Xcode Colors, which lets you easily put colored strings into the output console, uh, which makes it way easier if you have a large amount of logging information to pick out what you want to find. And then the second one I would pick would be a simple one called beginning of line and or Xcode beginning of line. And if you're in the middle of a line and you hit command left, it will move to the first character of the line instead of the left of the screen. And that once you get used to it is extremely useful because Normally, in those situations, you're going to the beginning of the line, uh, which, you know, in, in Vim or something would be a single character stroke. But in Cocoa text fields, you go all the way left and then option right and then option left is the fastest way. This makes it a single keystroke and it's extremely useful. Hmm. That sounds intriguing. There's also an NS string. Uh, you can, when you type uh, like an at quote string and then you click inside of it it pops mm -hmm. up an, a window where you can edit it without escaping anything without having to deal with like slash n you can just put in new lines and then when you close that pop-up it converts that to an escaped ns string format string uh, for you oh no that sounds super handy and there's another one for ns image that will pop up a list uh, an autocomplete list of all the image names in your project they are extreme time savers. Like I said, like a vanilla Xcode install is foreign to me these days. <laughs> do you do you find that when you've highly customized Xcode, if you are sitting down in front of another machine, do you do you encounter the the launch bar effect? I'll be honest, um, I would, but I have never coded on anyone's machine but mine. Good enough. I'm the same with uh, with things like uh, Sublime Text and Vim and. Those things are so customized for me that I'd be embarrassed to try to do it in front of somebody else on someone else's setup. Gotcha. But I, I, I'm also that way with the computer in general, given my extreme number of uh, trackpad shortcuts and keyboard modifications. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's almost an occupational hazard. It is. I've given up on caring. I sit down at other people's computers and fumble my way through remembering how to use Spotlight and things like that. <laughs> All right. Well, that was uh, that was a broad range of topics. Thanks for stopping by today. Well, thanks for having me. It, I, I'm with you. We were all over the place on that, but it, it was a lot of fun. Um, if people wanted to find you, you are uh, Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L, on Twitter. I am. And yeah. you can your products, anyway, can be found at uh, Barebones Software which is, I think it's just barebones.com. Yeah. Barebones.com, yep. Because you got there early and actually got your company name. Um, so 
let's see, that leaves me, and I am TT Scoff everywhere, and I am at BrettTerpstra.com. I'm the only one there. It's just me. My own blog. Um, and I think, I think that wraps it up. Anything else you want to mention? I, I don't think so. Thanks again for having me, though. Have a great day. You too. Um, take care of those birds. Keep them busy. Oh, I will. <laughs> All right. And we'll be back in a week.